you know, this idea that he was a, a naive dupe is, is ridiculous. He was an active intriguer. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Now that was Andrew Lowney you heard there at the top and he was talking to me all about the Duke of Windsor and Wallace Simpson and the life that they led after he abdicated in 1936. And it's a really in, really interesting story all about a man who, as there's no doubt about it, was a terrible human being absolutely very i don't think there are any redeeming features for him at all having read that book so uh we we talk all about that uh, lots of gossip in there nazis and murder as well so it's a two-parter so i've got first part um we'll be talking mainly about his treachery and then the second part we talk a little bit more about the rest of his life and that's coming out next week so I just thought I'd uh, let you know a little bit about uh, what's been going on at Aspects of History headquarters. So just over a year after I set the company up, we have produced our first two published books. Woohoo! It's pretty, uh, it's, it's, it, they're both short story collections, one set in ancient Rome uh, and the other in the medieval period. And they've got brilliant best-selling authors, Anne O'Brien, who's a friend of the podcast, and uh, Theo Brunn, we've got Simon Turney, all sorts of uh, best-selling authors have written for us in these short story collections. Um, so I'll put links in there, but they're, they're uh, good rollicking stories and very good stocking fillers. Okay, right. Uh, moving on, we have our Aspects of History Winter Festival coming up. And that will be on YouTube. We are going to be showing interviews with uh, brilliant historians over four nights the 20th to the 23rd and friend of the podcast Tessa Dunlop will be talking about women in the army in World War II another friend of the podcast Andrew Roberts George III now he's just come back from a book tour in America now he had the task of explaining to the Americans and I'm sure there are plenty of nice American listeners here um, Andrew had the task of explaining to them that George III was in fact not a tyrant and that he was a perfectly decent monarch and most unfairly lambasted by uh, by the founding fathers. Um, so I'm quite interested to see um, what the reception was to Andrew's uh, argument and we'll be talking about that and we'll also talk about George III's madness a little bit more as well. We've also got Rob Lyman, another friend of the podcast, um, he's going to be talking um, all about the Indian Army and he will also be discussing uh, the Japanese and the Japanese hierarchy and the, the really the, the catastrophic decisions they made by, by, fighting, uh, by bombing Pearl Harbor. And then finally, we've got Paul Lay. Now, Paul Lay is the... Uh, editor of History Today, former editor of History Today. He's literally left History Today uh, last week. And he's going to be talking all about his new book. And it's not a new book, his old book. Providence Lost, The Rise and Fall of Cromwell's Protectorate. And so we talked to Paul all about Cromwell. Did he cancel Christmas? And the all-important question is where is Cromwell's 
head. Now, my mother has told me that her family had, well, there was a rumour going around the family that the head was under a bed. Now, I don't know which bed it is, so I put this rumour to Paul to find out where Cromwell's head is, because after he died, and when Charles II returned, they exhumed his body and they stuck his head up on in Westminster, and then this sort of head might have disappeared, or did it, and Paul's able to help clear that up. Right, on to the podcast. Uh, now, one thing that I discussed with Andrew, but I'm, I've sort of bri- we b- briefly briefly mention it and that poor old Harry and Meghan come up and I got uh, I don't really have much of a problem with Harry and Meghan but I know some people do but I don't think even their harshest critics could put them in the same category as the Duke and Duchess of Windsor who well you know they were the Duke of Windsor was a traitor and so we talk a little bit about that but I don't think that I think it was almost an assumption that I had mentioned Harry and Meghan, but I hadn't actually. Um, I think, and obviously I need to check with my legal team, there is a certain other royal who I suspect is a little bit more similar to the two, um, but his name, shall, he shall remain well nameless. But uh, let me know what you think. Um, as ever, you can get hold of me. I am at on the Twitter, at... Ollie WCQ, that's O L L I E W C Q. You can find the Aspects of History Twitter account, that's at Aspects History. And then there's Andrew, you can get hold of Andrew Lowney, he's at Andrew Lowney. So, on with the show. Andrew Lowney, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Delighted to, to be here. Uh, so we're here to talk about your book, Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Uh, now, so I, I was just saying to you, and I, I thought I'd actually say to you, s- tell you on the podcast live rather than, you know, before, so our listeners is here, but I, I, I read this book and uh, I, I sort of went through it really quickly. Um, it is a real page turner. But um, my jaw was on the floor because I just couldn't get over the absolute, the, the gall of, of uh, this couple, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, um, Edward VIII. It is, it is an extraordinary story. I mean, there have been, of course, stories and rumours that he was a Nazi sympathiser, but they've always been his defenders. Uh, and I, I thought there was something in the story. And so I went and looked at the archives and the material is there. I just, a lot of material, of course, has been weeded and I had to go to other archives. But... The stuff is there. And I, I share your view. I mean, uh, my jaw dropped in terms of his uh, workings with the Nazis, his petulance and his dealings with Churchill and, and, and others, the way he treated his staff. I mean, we were jolly lucky not to have him as king. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, it, it, if uh, Wallace Simpson is a godsend, really. Well, I mean, one of my arguments is that actually she was the pretext that, that they, they, Baldwin and, and Courtiers were very concerned about him coming to the throne. In fact, his father was very concerned. Uh, and I think she gave them the pretext to manoeuvre him off. Uh, they would hoped before that that he would have a steeplechasing accident and kill himself. Uh, so she, she did their work for them. 
Um, and I think, you know, he could clearly have, have survived the abdication crisis, I think, if he'd been a bit smarter. He had support from people like Churchill and Beaverbrook, but he was outmaneuvered. He didn't. I mean, they said, our cock won't fight. He didn't have the fight for it. And, and he placed himself in a position where he was so sort of obsessed with Wallace, uh, indeed going to the point of threatening to kill himself if she wouldn't marry him, that he's basically walked into the trap. So that's interesting. Well, and you mentioned George V. So obviously George V is is Edward's, or he was actually called David, wasn't he? So yes, he is. It's it's, it's confusing. I, I call him the Duke of Windsor in the book, um, but yes, of course he was called David, uh, and then of course became Edward VIII. Okay, well I'll call him the Duke then, just for for um, simplicity's sake. So he was brought up by. Uh, well, uh, it's probably not your average upbringing, but George V is his father, and so is partly responsible for the for the for the man. Would that be yes, fair? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's interesting that Harry has been talking about the problems of of parenting in the royal family, which he says goes back. You know, he he suffered from, uh, and it's certainly true. I mean, George V was a martinet. He was a bully. He was a disciplinarian. He put enormous pressure on all his children, but particularly on the heir. Uh, and the problem was that, that the Duke Edward David was not very bright. He was not very dedicated to public service. Uh, he wanted to have a good time. Uh, and um, he was not, he, he was really not suited to become um, king. You know, there's this trope running through the royal family history and indeed through the crown between public pleasure or sort of public duty rather than private pleasure. And he was a classic example of the rogue royal, the one who wanted his private pleasure above his public duty. Yeah, it's something we, we see today. Um, so with the abdication, um, now he, he was he was he was crowned. Or he, did he go through the coronation, actually? I, I no, that was the problem. He, he, he inherited in, uh, in January 1936 when his father died. His father had said that he wouldn't, uh, he would ruin himself within a year, but it was only 324 days. The abdication crisis really blew up uh, literally in December 1936, and he was out within days. Uh, and that was one of the problems. He went off into exile without any arrangements having properly been made. And that was the shock. I mean, people like Bertie, really only from October, had any idea that they might have to, to step into the breach. So if he had been crowned, then this would have been very, very difficult to get him off the throne. I mean, once you're crowned. So, I mean, he had various options. Uh, the coronation was set for, for May 1937, which is when George was, was uh, crowned. Uh, and, you know, he could have kept her as a mistress. He could have um, married her after being crowned. But he insisted that he wanted to make a sort of honest woman of her. Uh, and the Dominion Prime Ministers were determined, because he was uh, head of the Church of England, that he couldn't marry a divorced woman. He couldn't have a morganatic marriage. Though in the end, that's what he had. You know, that was one of his great gripes throughout his life, that she was never um, made even Her Royal Highness. And so he does abdicate and he, he sort of leaves the country, doesn't he? And, and he ends up. And this is one thing that I, I it's obviously not his worst crime. But there's he goes to stay with um, is it Eugenie Rothschild in Austria, and and he's there Christmas Day and she gives him a present, and I I, I just couldn't get over the the absolute how bloody rude is this guy? 
Yes, he's extraordinary. I mean, he he expects he's very self entitled, so he expects them to pick up all the bills. They, they give him a suite of rooms, a library. He's up late at night playing the accordion and the bagpipes till three in the morning, so no one can sleep. He expects them. He's on the phone the whole time to Wallace, running up huge bills, eight hundred pounds, which was thousands of pounds that now, which he again expects to pick up. He never tips anyone. He expects his equerries to pick up the bills when he goes shopping, or he doesn't settle his bills with tradesmen. Uh, he, uh, as you say, uh, for example, he he basically doesn't turn up to, to Christmas celebrations that that the Rothschilds have, have had great trouble set up for him. They present presents to him, and he he's got nothing. He I think he gives him a signed photograph. Um, he, he is completely self-centered and selfish, and I'm afraid Wallace only compounds that that sense. I mean, they're they're, they're made for each other, and, and we have that all the way through their lives, where uh, people are badly treated and they think they can get away with it. Mm. Um, so when when the there's a lot of sort of um, uh, they have they, he has to wait until he can and get together with Wallace. Um, it, it, yes, he's in exile in Austria while she's in France because they're waiting for the decree absolute for her for her divorce, uh, and they think it's better they're in separate countries. And meanwhile, of course, he's he's negotiating the financial settlement with the royal family, which is another source of great tension and upset because he double crosses them. He he actually pretends to have less money than he does have, uh, and they're forced to pay him from their own resources rather than go to the civil list. But um, they're eventually reunited uh, in the spring of 1937, and they go to this chateau in the Loire, which has been lent to them by a Franco-American businessman called uh, Charles Bedo. Uh, but the family boycott the wedding. They, ref they uh, refuse basically any of the, 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 the Windsor's friends to come there. Lord Louis Mountbatten, who uh, I'd hoped to be best man because the Duke had been his best man, is forbidden from going. Um, there are uh, the Church of England priests are forbidden from marrying them. I mean, they're basically frozen. And and the the money is interesting because they are fabulously wealthy. It seems throughout their lives. Uh, your book, you're really helpful because you're always giving the the modern day uh, amounts that they have in the notes throughout the book, which is which is really useful. But it also shows how just how wealthy they were and. Uh, yeah, it is extraordinary. You know, um, I mean, they made a lot of money. I mean, the parallels, as you say, with Harry and Meghan are, are very telling, but they made money from giving radio interviews. I mean, they even charge photographs taken of them. They, uh, they charge to go to parties where they even would vet the, 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 the list. They endorse products from cutlery to linen. They made a lot of money from two separate books. The only members of the royal family up to this point, or at that point, who had really close to the center of the royal family written memoirs. They, uh, uh, he was very interested in, in stocks and shares and got tips from, from businessmen. They sponged off people, so they really didn't spend a lot of money. Uh, but they, they were pretty uh, extravagant. I mean, they had a staff of 26, several chauffeurs, several maids, several cooks. Uh, they entertained quite lavishly. Um, and they lived the life that they would have had, in effect, if they'd, if they'd, if they'd inherited. I mean, there was liveried footman. Uh, uh, he had security around him the whole time, paid for by the French, but also by us. Uh, his, he had a special branch officer who, in fact, was reporting back to, to Scotland Yard on what he was up to. Uh, and he was, in fact, being put under MI5 surveillance by his father in 1936. And that continued with the FBI putting him under surveillance from probably from about uh, 1940. 
Uh, and at the same time, the French had him under surveillance when he moved to France. So the great thing for us biographers is that some of these reports are in the archives. Many, of course, tragically were destroyed. But we have, you know, telephone taps. We have descriptions of who he saw, uh, his behavior. And that's all really helpful. So we should talk a little bit about um, his, certainly his Nazi sympathies. And he's, he, yeah. he, which he he's, sort of dresses up as um, he's interested in peace. Yes, that's the line. I mean, he'd always been very pro-German. He was 16th, 18th German. His mother was a German princess. He spoke fluent German. He spent a lot of his youth uh, on holiday in Germany. He was very close to German cousins, particularly someone people like Philip of Hesse, who was a, became a Nazi general. Uh, and he believed in the Fuhrer principle and strong government. He was an admirer of Hitler. He remained so until the end of his life. He was, like Wallace, very anti-Semitic. And so he had a great deal of sympathy with the Nazis. Um, so, you know, clearly a lot of people, including Bertie, had been quite pro-German and pro-appeasement to avoid a Second World War. But I think where the Duke goes beyond everyone else is he continued to be sympathetic. Even after war broke out, he actually campaigned for um, or, or broadcast in favour of peace on the eve of the war. Uh, Hitler supposedly sent him a wedding present and they were certainly in touch literally on the eve of the war. Uh, and he um, continued. I mean, he came back and after the outbreak of war in January 1940 and campaigned with Beaverbrook behind the scenes to try and do a peace deal with the Germans. So, um, you know, this idea that he was a, a naive dupe is, is ridiculous. He was an active intriguer against the Germans. And we know from the captured German documents, this is the correspondence and the telegrams between Ribbentrop in Berlin and the German ambassadors in Lisbon and Spain. That, I mean, he, when he was in Spain in summer of 1940 and in Lisbon, with the British trying to get him out, having escaped from France after the German invasion, that he was in direct contact going into the embassy. He was very open to their overtures that he should come back as a British go-lighter, as a sort of British Pétain figure. Uh, and, you know, this is all confirmed in the diaries of royal courtiers like Tommy Lassels and MI5 officers like Guy Little. So it, it, it's there in black and white. And I think what's fascinating is the campaign after the war by people like Churchill to suppress this information and to prevent it becoming public, because, of course, it was so embarrassing. And I found, for example, mirror archives in the Bahamas to the British archives. But the Bahaman archives are much, much fuller. They haven't been weeded in the same way as the archives here. So there's been a systematic attempt by the British government to, to, to kill this story. Uh, and it's only now, I think, that we've I've found the evidence to really stand it up. And um, actually, you, you're you're in the middle of a, a sort of battle. I don't know if there's how much you can say about it, but um... yes, no, of course. Uh, I mean, this is all part of a big argument I have that our history is being censored, and the government, uh, generally the government, are trying to suppress what's what's happened. We don't really know our true history because so much of it is taken to people's graves with their secrets, or the archives are not released. And so, my previous book was a biography of the Mount Battens, which came out in 2019. But I began researching it in 2015, and I knew that uh, there were their diaries and letters at the University of Southampton. They'd been bought by public monies to be made available to scholars. They'd actually been quoted in the previous official lives of Dickie and Edwina. And when I asked for them, I was told that um, they didn't know anything about them, which I knew was not true. Uh, anyway, after a series of FOI requests uh, and appeals to the Information Com Commissioner, who was responsible for, for freedom of information and these information requests, he ruled in 2019 that the, all the diaries and letters should be released. They've been bought with 
four and a half million pounds of our money for us to see and being closed illegally. Uh, and we've just gone through the appeal hearing that the Cabinet Office and Southampton University, who bought the material on our behalf, uh, brought. Uh, and the cost of this so far for me has been about £300,000 and is rising. So the cost of the government in Southampton, i.e. us, the taxpayer, must have been at least double that, if not a lot more. Uh, and we had a victory. We, we got basically 99%, or I, not we, I. Uh, I wish there were more historians who were coming out in support of this, because I think it's a very important issue about access to archives, about academic freedom, about abuse of, of government power, about the censorship of our past. Uh, I got this 99% released, but we're still fighting for the remaining thousand pages, uh, which is still redacted, and also for the correspondence between Nehru and Edwina, which is still closed, but again was bought in 2011 and should have been available um, to the public. And that correspondence is very important because I think it'll shed fresh light on partition and Indian independence, how impartial the Mountbatten's were, when the affair with Nehru began. I mean, not normally uh, something of interest to serious historians, but of relevance here. Uh, and it's been a huge story um, in, in India, uh, where, of course, you know, they feel their history has not been given to them fully and that they were tricked. Uh, and I think, you know, there is a duty of the government uh, and Southampton to release that correspondence, as well as these redactions. I mean, what we're finding with these redactions is that many of these, these things that they're trying to close are already in the public domain, that they in th themselves cleared 40 years ago, or are so innocent. They're things like had tea with, with Lilibet, you know, went riding with Prince Philip. This is not stuff that's going to bring down the monarchy. So it's part of a sort of deference to, to the royal family, which I think we need to get away from. And, you know, of course, their, their, their privacy has to be protected for the sake of the, the image of the monarchy. But let's do it for the serious, important issues and not just to cover up their, their foibles or, or, or very minor details of their private life. And are these materials really, I know we're going off on a slight tangent, but it's, I think it's really interesting. Uh, are these materials predominantly based around that, that period after the war? Or is it, you know, are we going up until Mountbatten's death? What, what, what is the, what, what time The closures period? cover the diaries which begin in 1920, right up to Mountbatten's death in 1979. Um, there's a, a focus on 1947 and 1948, clearly when they're in India. Uh, and there's also a focus from the 70s when he becomes this mentor to Prince Charles and there's material relating to Prince Charles. Uh, and he's clearly an influence also on the Queen. But there are references, for example, to the whole debate of the Mountbatten-Windsor name in the 1950s. Um, but, you know, everything that, that they've had the force to, to release uh, from the redactions that we've challenged and from the material that has been released, which I think is about 30,000 pages, is all very innocent. So it's, it's perplexing that they've had such a fight for something which actually is not... Um, going to damage the monarchy or damage relations with India. And I can only conclude that this is a face-saving uh, uh, episode where they've been caught out doing something they shouldn't have done, uh, and they now need to find some excuse to justify their behaviour. And also to place a marker in the sand for anyone else who might have the temerity to challenge anything like this. Another historian who comes forward, um, you know, to challenge uh, access to archives. But this is an important case um, because it's an important archive, seen as probably second and important to the Churchill Archive at Churchill College, Cambridge. And the fact is, four and a half million pounds of our money was spent buying this for us 
The Mountbatten sold this very freely. They, the, the material has already been weeded. The material has been kept back at the Mountbatten home, Broadlands. Some of it has already been sent to the Royal Archives, where I suspect we'll never see it. And if this had been bought, for example, by an American um, archive, it would have all been made available. There wouldn't have been this question. And, and um, scholars would have been able to look at it for the last 10 years. And this stuff is, is, is invaluable for the social and royal life of, of that period over 60 years from the 20s through to the 80s. Uh, it's invaluable for um, the Second World War because Matt Batten was in charge of combined operations. He was um, sent as Supreme Allied Commander to Southeast Asia. Uh, he had clearly uh, an important role after the war as first sea lord. He was at Suez and later as chief of defense staff. So scholars really need to be able to have access to these papers and not to have them censored because we're not really getting the true picture of the past. Well, I wish you all the success with that. I mean, you've got a few, uh, it would be great if it can be released in time for um, the partition anniversary next year, but um, that I don't know how. Well, I mean, material has been released. I mean, one of the scandals is the archivist who closed the material at Southampton then arranged with the cabinet office to edit his own edition of the 1947 diary. Uh, and the government and the Southampton and the archivist refused to say whether that edition is going ahead or not. Um, so there's been all sorts of funny arrangements behind the scenes. Mm. Um, but yes, I agree that the material on we've got this anniversary and a lot of attention being focused on independence on partition. And it's important if people are doing that next year, that they have all the information. Right. So so back to uh, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Now, Churchill is obviously quite i think he, i get the impression he's a bit sympathetic or or is aware of, of of what the duke is like but is also at the same time quite sympathetic yes no he'd very much been head of the, the king's party he was a strong monarchist he had this romantic view of, of royalty and the monarchy um and he had been friendly with with the duke uh and indeed he had campaigned to try and get him money under the civil list for the financial settlement but i think when he became prime minister and he realized that the king, the Duke was intriguing against him and indeed against Bertie, his brother, that in fact he was saying to the Germans, if you want to subjugate Britain, you know, send in the bombers. Uh, he was appalled. Uh, uh, and I think his views changed. I think he had this realistic view that he needed to be contained, which is why he, he after threatening them with the court martial for his behavior, he then uh, basically forced him to take the role of governor of the Bahamas. But yes, he was fed up with them. Uh, the Duke was 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 like a spoilt child most of the time. You know, he refused to 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 do things that he should be doing. Um, uh, for example, a plane was sent to pick him up on the outbreak of war. He refused to get into it because it wouldn't take all his luggage. Uh, he refused to um, come back to Britain in the summer of 1940 immediately because he, he wanted to um, ensure the royal family met him and, and treated his wife properly. And he got his she got her HRH. Uh, and that he was given proper accommodation and a proper job, uh, and that his valet who'd been called up for military service as being of military age was, was, was brought back. You know, he had no idea that there was a war going on and that his own interests had to come second to that. You know, even when he went to, to the Bahamas uh, and Government House had been redecorated for him, he insisted on further monies being spent at the cost of, you know, spitfires during the height of the Battle of Britain. Yes, wasn't uh, it? It was the price of a Spitfire to to um, to uh, to interior decorate his house. Yeah, several Spitfires. Yeah, and and it, this carried on throughout the war. You know, you know, he was spending. He was, you know, 
spending huge sums of money uh, and re requiring the government to spend huge sums of money um, for his own private pleasure when everyone else was making huge sacrifices. It's, it is extraordinary. And one thing I did, did find quite interesting is that during the phony war, he was given a kind of role as a, and he was given the rank of major general. And he sort of had a look at um, what the British expeditionary force, um, how it was set up and wrote a report, which apparently wasn't that bad, the report. Uh, no, what he, what he, he is actually demoted from field marshal to major general. Oh. That was part of his his gripe that he had to report right. to other people, and he took on the post, as you say, of liaison officer to the first French army, uh, uh, and his job was to go and inspect the French defences. And this um, French, right? Sorry, I got that wrong. Yeah, <laughs> had been rather cagey about the Maginot Line. The British were very keen to see what they'd been up to, and you're right. He did produce some reports uh, um, on the on the French defences showing. Uh, their weaknesses, showing the, the poor morale, the poor generalship, which he passed back to the British, which they found very useful. The problem was he also passed this back to Charles Bedo for some reason. And Charles Bedo, which he must have known, was a Nazi agent. Uh, he had, um, uh, and we know again from these captured German documents, Charles Bedo passed this information to the German ambassador in The Hague, who of course passed it back to, to Berlin, and the German war plans were changed. We know that. Uh, and so as a result, the invasion of France, they didn't head up against the Maginot Line, they just came around the side of it. So in effect, the Duke betrayed um, the, you know, these plans and, and allowed the, the, the German invasion of France. It's an extraordinary story. Um, uh, and no one has ever really looked at this properly. No, and added to that, his encouraging the Germans to bomb London and Buckingham Palace. I mean, all this adds up to this isn't just a sort of flirtation with. with, with... No, it's right treachery. Uh, uh, and, and everyone knew that. Uh, and they say it in their private diaries. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, he also communicates in code with the Germans about coming back when he's sent to the Bahamas uh, and they feel maybe the, um, uh, you know, this isn't the right moment. He says, I'm very ready to come back whenever you call on me um, uh, and just send me a message in code. And, you know, communicating with the enemy in code during the war was, was a capital offence. I mean, people like Lord Hawhorn were, were executed for far less. So, you know, one could argue that if this stuff had come out during the war, there would have been a very strong case to execute him. After all, Leo Amory, who was a member of the cabinets, his son, John, was executed just for being sympathetic to the Germans and broadcasting for them. Um, so, uh, you know, it is a huge scandal, which they've covered up for years uh, and it's only now, having gone to archives in, in Germany and Russia, Spain, Portugal uh, and America, that actually this stuff has begun to emerge. But there's been a whole scale destruction of files that in any way would incriminate the Duke. Uh, I mean, even, for example, I talked to a special branch officer who was responsible for destroying the files in the 1980s. Uh, we know that, uh, that, that were held on him. We know that the MI5 file on him was, was destroyed at the end of the war. Um, and there's still files um, uh, which are closed. Um, the Royal Archives have not, is the word they use, catalogued a lot of this material, uh, assuming it would ever be made available, even if it was catalogued. So, you know, there is still a lot more to be done, I think, on, on the whole story of 1940 and the role that Duke of Windsor played. Well, that's the end of part one. And I do hope you enjoyed that. It's particularly important to hear about Andrew's battle against the government over the access to these archives. He's 
got a crowdfunding site, so I've given him some money. I uh, hope you can too. I've put a link in the show notes to his crowdfunding campaign. We also, um, next week, we'll be talking more on the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, in particular their rather weird tastes. And we also talk a little bit about Guy Burgess, who was one of the Cambridge spies who defected to Russia. And Andrew had written a book called Stalin's Englishman, and I actually gave that to my father, who really enjoyed it. I don't think he liked Guy Burgess, though. So do join me again next week. Now, after that, I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break for Christmas and New Year, but we'll be returning in 2022 with more great guests. So I do hope you can join me then. If you want to get hold of me, you can through the Twitter. I'm at OllieWCQ. There's Aspects of History's Twitter account, which is at Aspects History. And then you can get hold of Andrew as well. He's at Andrew Lowney. Thank you and good night.